Ladies and gentlemen, we will have a um, Q&A with the directors and uh, uh, lawyer in the movie. So if people want to leave the place, they can do it now. So I can uh, invite uh, Michelle, Patrick, and Dennis to the stage. Would you please uh, come here? Great to have you here. So please use the microphones, and I'm afraid you have to share the microphone. Oh, no, you got your own mic. Great. Okay. Um, Patrick, Reed, Michelle Shepard, and Dennis um, Edney. First of all, congratulations with your impressive movie. Thank I'll, you. Okay. I will start with a couple of questions, very basic questions to you. And to you, Dennis, and after that, I hope the audience can join the conversation. Um, Patrick and Michelle, correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess in 2010 there was another documentary about uh, this case. And so why and when did you start to this documentary? Well, I'm, uh, I'm actually a journalist. Yes. And uh, I've been following this story for about 13 years. And okay. one of the, um, Dennis and I have been in this together, we said, we, along with Omar, we're sort of the only constants in this uh, yeah. saga. Um, and uh, what was really frustrating and, and offensive during that entire time was the fact that Omar Khadr was never been, a been able to tell his story. I so see. everybody else has spoken about his story for years. Yeah. He became a real uh, pawn, really. Um, and a figure, a character to a lot of people um, for different causes. Mm. But for the, the years he was in Guantanamo, the Pentagon uh, banned journalists from speaking to detainees. And then I was lucky enough in 2012 to meet up with uh, Patrick, who's an excellent filmmaker and been here many times before, and Peter. And um, they approached me the with the idea say, of doing yeah. the documentary. Yeah. And then it took us two and a half years to fight the Canadian government to get access to him. Uh, we were banned in Canada as well when he was detained there. Wow. Uh, and we had to wait for him to get out. Yeah. So whose initial idea was it to make this documentary? Yours idea or his idea? Don't say both of us. I don't believe no, it's that. It's definitely not both. It's no. never both. Yeah. Well, I mean, Michelle's <laughs> been interested in the subject yeah. forever. Uh, yeah. And of course, I will speak on her behalf. Um, <laughs> okay. And she, the film you mentioned in 2010, Michelle was involved in that one as well. Okay. Um, but I, you know, I think it, as you know, it became almost an obsession for you, like a clinical. <laughs> she had a clinical problem, <laughs> and uh, no, I think it was also a need to kind of see the film or see the story to the end. And seeing it to the end was really being able to speak to him, speak yes. with him. Uh, and then share that and also maybe you can talk about this the difference between you know when people responded to the film when we first showed it in Toronto yeah, um, yeah. it was funny it was nice there was a real connection especially because it's, it's been a very Canadian story it's a very polarizing figure in Canada as you see a little bit in the documentary and Dennis certainly knows um, and so we had a this premiered at TIFF and we had a real connection from the audience and it was wonderful and people would come up and say um, wow, I, really, I, I didn't know his story. And on, it was so powerful, thank you. And on one hand, that was great. 
And on the other hand, I was thinking, really? Because I've written a book about this and probably 327 articles for the newspaper and been to Guantanamo 26 times. So for me, it was a really great lesson, even though I'll, you know, I'll never leave uh, writing. It was a great lesson uh, in the power of what a film can do. Image. Yeah. An image. Yeah. And, and especially, I think, with this story, people really needed to see him and to hear from him. Yeah. But, but it was important for us, too, to make sure we had all voices. Yeah. It's a complicated story. It's a, it's a complicated issue. Yeah. And we didn't want to make an activist film that would have been a way been easy to make uh, but we wanted to really put the whole story out there and let people decide for themselves I see Dennis uh, when uh, did you um, get involved in this story why did you pick this story this case this legal case how does it work for you well I was offended with what I had understood to be Guantanamo Bay from an outside viewpoint. And then I eventually was able to get into Guantanamo Bay and I had never thought that I would find myself in a torture chamber, a, a place where evil persists, human beings are degraded, killed, sexually assaulted, abused, tortured, etc. And so when I walked into a solitary cell and had no windows with a young boy chained to a floor looking and with all kinds of injuries about him and seemingly abandoned by all. How could I walk away from that? If I had walked away, which I had thought about a number of times, I would have had to lie to myself. I would have to say he's been taken care of by someone else. I would have to deny what what Guantanamo stands for, it stands for evil. And I always say that none of us could think of ourselves as a part of a civil society when we allow a place like Guantanamo Bay to exist. Can I say that you are more activistic in this case than you, the, the directors? What do you mean by activist? Okay, I take my question back. <laughs> I like that. You understand what I mean, man. Tell me. Sure, he's he's been Omar's activist, his yeah. advocate for advocate, for years. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I think what Dennis yeah. is a, a very skilled lawyer. Yeah. Uh, but Dennis has been fighting in the court of public opinion for years. I mean, yeah. he's been the one uh, to talk about Omar Khadr from the beginning. Right now, there's quite a bit of sympathy for him. The, the yeah. dial has, has moved, I would say, on, on the way people look at Guantanamo. But 2002, 2003, it certainly wasn't like that. Certainly yeah. in Canada and the US. Yeah. And nobody wanted to speak about this case. Yeah. And it was really difficult for yeah. Dennis and his whole family. And they did that from the beginning. So he has been an activist. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> and Dennis, what was the most um, challenging part of his case, maybe legally or ethically or other factors, other aspects of this case? It touches upon so many areas. Legally, Guantanamo was a legal sham. It's a kangaroo court. And you saw our government talk about Omar Khadr being a terrorist without any backdrop to the circumstances. Everything that I, this film has shown you about Guantanamo, everything I know about the shame of Guantanamo, our government also knew and continued to lie about it. Um, and of course, Islamophobia is, 
is alive and well, particularly in North America. And, we, and Dick Cheney and, and Bush talked about these being the most evil of people, the worst of the worst. So, so the politics of fear to make you surrender your, your rationality, to surrender your commitment to human liberties, um, were, were a challenge when I was trying to tell Canada and America what Guantanamo really is, a propaganda coup, because it remains that way. If you don't put people up for trial, if you don't give them due process, if you don't give them disclosure to defend themselves or lawyers or human rights organizations, none of us could say that these are terrorists. Um, I still have about three pages of questions, but uh, I guess that's now the time to see some hands in the air. Over there, please. And I have to repeat your question, as I said, for the podcast uh, purposes. Please, stand up. And what's your question? To whom? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't hear because I cannot hear you properly. Excuse me. I will hold the microphone. I got a sense that uh, there is some tension between Omar and his family. Uh, um, I think Omar alludes to that at some point about a differing point of views. I was wondering if Dennis could comment on that. Yes. Yeah. Dennis, and maybe the directors, because you have um, done all these interviews, have especially Michelle and Patrick, so please, elaborate. I'm never comfortable talking about other people's families. It seems to me that people want to know about his background. And what I often say is, who amongst us can't have some concern about our own family? Is there a conflict between, or a tension between Omar and his family? You heard Omar talk. What did he say? He said, if anybody's going to be influenced, it's my family through me. Uh, because the, the Canadian public heard Mrs. Carter and, and the sister Zainab say some of the most ridiculous things. The problem about those ridiculous things, they've haunted Omar Carter for years. They've haunted me for years when I go into courtrooms. And so uh, I, I'd rather talk about Omar Carter than his family. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll quickly weigh in on that. Um, I mean, one thing I do respect about Omar related to his family is if he was being completely... Uh, you know, if he was just playing the system, it'd be far easier for him to say, I'm distancing myself from them. Um, you know, and again, as he says in the film, and as he's kind of con been quite consistent about, he, they're his family. So yeah. he has a relationship with them, and uh, it's not an easy one. But again, one could say that about one's own family if you look deeply enough. I mean, what happened, what was interesting is the screening we had in Toronto, one of Omar's older brothers came to the screening. And he has his own uh, colorful past. Um, <laughs> what does it mean, colorful past? <laughs> a very colorful past. Uh, that's a whole other film. Okay. Um, but the, the interesting thing for me is he came up afterwards, and I thought maybe he'd have some want to talk about how the family was portrayed or not portrayed. And all he really wanted to talk about was how amazed he was about his brother. Wow. So in this case, he hadn't seen his brother for... Uh, 14, yes. 15 years. Yeah. 
Um, and so he last time he saw his brother was when his brother was 15 years old. Yeah. So could you imagine that the first time you actually see your brother in the flesh or not in the flesh, but on a, <laughs> is on a screen. Yeah. And he just kept saying, I don't understand why he's so yeah. kind of relaxed, why he's so at peace with himself, yeah. why he's so much more well-adjusted than I am. Yeah. Uh, but he had great respect for his younger brother. Yeah. Uh, and it felt to me in that moment like that was a, an opportunity that, again, as Omar says in the film, that yeah. maybe he's going to change his family more than yeah. the other way around. By the way, how does it work? What's, what's his, the key to understand his attitude, his like almost Gandhi, Nelson Mandela attitude? What, what kind of uh, drugs do you use in, uh, in your country? What's the quality of your weed? He You're was asking so about relaxed. us, drugs in our country? Uh, yeah, he was so relaxed. He was he, so... Um, Mature. You know, I think he would, uh, he hates that comparison to Nelson Mandela. People have said no, that. No, I, I he, take that back. No, of no course. but I'm not, no, no. I didn't mean it as no. a criticism of you. No. It's just, no. it's people have said that he has this, this incredible piece. Yeah. I, I think he hates being put on that, that pedestal. And he says in the film, I'd like nothing more than to fade from the spotlight. And, and I truly believe that. And Dennis can speak more to that. Um, but I think he was in a perverse way, very lucky in terms of the family, his, his adopted family. Uh, that he managed to get while he was in prison. Uh, Stephen Zanakis, the um, brigadier, retired Brigadier General, who's the forensic psychiatrist in the film, yeah. he spent more than 200 hours with him in Guantanamo. There's another child psychologist uh, from New York, Kate Porterfield, who's not in the film, and she spent the same amount of time. Um, there were professors from Edmonton, this amazing university, that they, one professor went down and visited him there. They gave him a curriculum that he studied, and that's the university he's at now. And then, of course, he had Dennis, and Dennis's partner, Nate Whitling. And they humanized him, and they gave him therapy, and they cared about him. And I think that has really allowed him to survive and allows him to continue to survive. And we'll see if that carries on, that attitude. Dennis, do you have anything to add before I go to back to I take very little credit, not because I'm modest, but what I have noticed... He's not modest. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. What I have noticed in dealing with people who have been tortured is they don't become angry. They don't, they don't have a desire to come after you and shoot and get revenge. What they find within themselves is a, another level of compassion of humanity. It's far beyond my pay grade to understand it, but I've observed that. When I was in Guantanamo and I asked Omar one time, what do you want to do when I get you out of here? He said, I want to be a doctor. And I said, why? And he said, because I want to make sure that no one's ever injured like I've been. Thank you. Uh, over there, please stand up. The microphone is coming to you, and she will hold the microphone. Uh, thank you for the film. It was wonderful. Uh, the American soldier, the torturer in uh, Afghanistan, I'm curious from the filmmakers, how did you come into contact with him? And I'm curious from Dennis, if you know if this man um, has or has plans to apologize to Omar for what he's done. Okay, thank you. So uh, first for you, how did you contact them? And so, so Damien Corsetti um, is a fascinating character. And I think we both said, you know, you could do a whole film on, on him. Uh, I had met him years ago when I was researching the book. And I, I think he speaks reluctantly. He definitely did the documentary reluctantly. But 
wants to right his wrongs, and he feels speaking about it is, is part of doing that. Uh, just to clarify, he was at Bagram at the time that Omar was there, but he wasn't his chief interrogator. He interrogated other detainees. He did horrendous things, uh, which he's still haunted by. Um, he was involved in a case where there was a, um, you might have seen the documentary Taxi to the Dark Side, where there was an Afghan taxi driver named Dilawar who died in Bagram. At the same time, it was the same crew uh, who interrogated him um, that, that interrogated Omar, and Damien was part of that. But he didn't interrogate Omar, and in fact, it was meeting Omar, as he says in the film, that it, it made him question what he was doing there. It, it, it really made him question everything about his whole mission after 9-11. Yeah. Uh, so we were you know, lucky to have him uh, come in the film. He has actually asked to meet Omar. I think uh, he might have reached out at one point. Um, and while, sure. while Omar... Um, once, was he was, once he was free. Yeah, so tell me, uh, did, he, did, he met, did they met? Oh, no, Michelle has met Damien. He has um, reached out twice to meet Omar, to find forgiveness. And we, when Omar at this, had just been out in, in the public for a short period of time, so nothing has been set up. Um, and, and Michelle is correct, Damien was not his main torturer. His main torturer was Sergeant Joshua Claus, who was later convicted for killing one detainee and crippling two others using the exact same techniques that he'd used on Omar Kader. Yeah. And, and he was given a six-month sentence, which was rescinded so that he could give evidence at Omar's so-called trial that he had tortured Omar to acknowledge that he had thrown a hand grenade. Yeah. Kafka could not have thought of a better scenario. <laughs> uh, Patrick, one question about how you filmed it, because now we are at the film festival. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I saw when, you know, Corsetti, this man, he was whole time, he was half dark, half um, lighted, unlighted. Yep. Was, I guess there was an idea about that. Well, I mean, it was, uh, it was a practical idea rather than a dramatic one. Um, Damien <laughs> lives, uh, lives in a small, smallish town in the U.S. Um, he did not mind being recognizable in some way, but he wanted to be filmed. He didn't want to be blurred because he, he did want to go on the record. Great. He was fine if we used his name. Yeah. But, you know, we showed him various frames and, uh, you know, the, the one that we ended up going with was just kind of dramatically lit. He's, he was fine with because he said, it's still me, but if I'm walking down the street in my town and somebody sees this film, they won't necessarily come up and identify me yeah. right away. I mean, the fact that he does have a tattoo on his, on his leg of, with the Statue of Liberty and a gun to her head uh, makes him a bit, uh, it makes it kind of hard to be low profile. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it wasn't, uh, we weren't trying to go, it would have been a little heavy handed if we did that purely to make him look like, uh, you know, a particularly evil yeah. guy. That was, that was yeah. with his uh, involvement. Oh, yeah. Please uh, stand up. I saw one more hand, yes. Wait, wait a minute, wait for the microphone. Yes, when thank I you. pulled up my hand, uh, the answer was already no. given afterwards because I was very curious what, what kind of study he will, he will do. Yeah. And uh, he will be the best doctor um, there is in the future. 
Yeah. Okay. Thank well, you for the movie. Over there, yeah, thank you. Over there, one more question. Back there, yeah. Or. Hi. Um, thank you for the movie. I have a question. You say you wanted to make a movie about the end of the story, but uh, as I could read it, that it's not the end because they get they have an appeal, and I was wondering what the lawyer says about the chances uh, for him. So this is about the appeal. The appeal. We have a new government that you might have heard about his fabulous hair because that seems to be all the media is covering. Yeah, yeah. It was here for front page news. You know, about fifty percent women, fifty percent men. Sikh guy, an <laughs> Afghan refugee, former right. refugee, everything. Congrel right. Congratulations. Thank you. you. So yeah. he's our new prime minister. So I guess waiting to see if that appeal will continue. It's, it's appealing his, his uh, bail um, that he has now. Uh, there's some anticipation that maybe the government will abandon it, but there's been no word on that. Uh, and then also there's a, a civil suit that uh, Dennis has against... Uh, the, the government for his treatment. Canadian go government, Canadian I assume. Government. Yes, yes. And also, sorry, Thank one you. last time. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'll interrupt one last time and then I'm going to let him speak. Um, there's also his conviction is being appealed in Washington, his Guantanamo conviction. And um, the majority of uh, convictions that have gone before the appeals court on the DC circuit have been overturned. So I think, I forget the numbers, but I think it's eight, there's been eight convictions before the military commissions in Guantanamo and four have been overturned. So that might happen with, with uh, Omar's case. And in fact, that's anticipated what's gonna happen. Um, I saw over there and maybe we can collect two questions because we have to round up. We have only five minutes. Two questions after each other, please. Dennis, uh, we are very proud of you. I wish that every victim has someone who believed in his story or her story and kept it alive. My question to you, how is Omar today after four or five months of the release? For Patrick and Michelle, this is a kind of film that the ending was not very clear at all for years and years. Tell us about the challenge of making a documentary that the basic issue of it is patience and waiting for the right moments. Thank you. Great. Two questions. So maybe one more question and then... No? Oh, he, oh, oh yeah, over there. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I just wanted to go back to the question that was raised earlier around um, what kept Omar so strong and his, the personality that you keep seeing now. Um, I think therapy, what you mentioned, and the people around him now is one thing, but he, he's gone through so much and so much influence also earlier in his life and during the present time. There must have been, you would have thought that he would have some sort of revenge or influence from that side as well. Is it some, some internal goodness that, that or some internal belief system that you believe he maintains throughout? Yeah. Or is it really the therapy that came afterwards? Okay, so questions? Omar's doing well. He goes bicycling with my son. Would you stand up, please, Cameron? Where is your son? Okay, yeah. Come on, your dad's trying to embarrass you. Can you stand up, Cameron? <laughs> Come on, Cameron, stand up. <laughs> okay. Um, so he's doing fine. <laughs> he is doing well. He loves to study. He loves to be on his bike. I remember calling Patricia one time saying, how's Omar doing? And she said, I can't get him off his bike. You know, and many of you will realize that when you first had got your bike, it was a tremendous symbol of freedom. So he's doing very well. It's a difficult journey. He's, 
He's not just someone who has been in jail for 12 years. He's also somebody who didn't have the kind of Western lifestyle that many of us have had. Yeah. So he's doing very well. So last question for you, the challenges about uh, making this movie. And also one more time, the question about how, what makes him tick? What makes him this, act this way, behave this way? Um, well, the main, one of the main challenges, obviously, is usually when you're making a film, you get to know your main character a lot before you start filming. You get to gain their trust. Um, and you don't know exactly the shape of the film, but you kind of, over time, see it kind of organically come together. Um, in this case, we did the exact opposite uh, approach. We filmed with all of our I wouldn't say secondary characters because, you know, everybody's a star, including Dennis. Um, and we kind of got all that together and tried to figure out what we would use, uh, how it would all fit together. And originally, our plan, it looked like we would do a jailhouse interview with, uh, with Omar. Um, and again, there was problems related to access with the, our, our own government in Canada. Um, but then, you know, the challenge is we met Omar and we started filming about 15 minutes later and we knew we only had, you know, in total probably a day with him, half a day to do a long sit-down interview and then come back the next day and spend half a day with him kind of naturally interacting um, with Dennis and Patricia and kind of exploring his early hours of freedom and taking us up into his room and uh, so yeah, it was a, it was a, that was the great challenge. It's just kind of doing things in reverse order and also having very, very little time, little practical time with your main character and little time to, uh, to win his trust. And Michel, one more time, because probably it was the first answer was not all satisfactory about his state of mind. What makes him so relaxed? What makes him so mature and well, I, I, I mean, I do think that's a question that needs to be asked of, of him, and, and Dennis knows this better than I do, but, but I think we were, um, what we're, we're filming there was sort of his first few days of freedom, and it was, it's a, it's a snapshot. And he, as he said, was on this, this freedom high. But I think a lot of what you saw, I mean, one of my favorite scenes is when he's talking about the, the guard that came by his cell. And in Guantanamo, there was such a one of the problems with the place is there's such a high turnover of, of guards and interrogators over the years. So you would have a tour that would come in for six months just when they started to sort of get an idea of how the prison operated, a new tour would come in. And they'd try and be really hard off the bat. So they went underwent a lot of just generic everyday abuse from the guards. Some were great by the end of their tour, but the beginning, you know, you get someone new. So I think when he talks about that guard that really tried to, to bother him, and one day he just realized, okay, I'm not gonna let him get under my skin, because the only thing I can control in here are my emotions. And so that's a, a conscious deci decision. I don't know if I would have the power to do that in the same circumstance, but I, I did believe him as to, you know, that's the way he survived, and I think okay. he, he continues to use that coping mechanism today. And just one quick thing, uh, to echo what Dennis was saying earlier, I mean, the, the other two detainees we filmed with, Mozambique and Ruhal Ahmed, are, you know, they were not in Guantanamo nearly as long as Dennis. 
as or as Freud, Omar, or as Dennis Freud Freud <laughs> but it was uh, it very amazing to me just how uh, very philosophical they were about their experiences there um, and again the whether you're just convincing yourself but you know very much that they learned a lot about themselves about the world yeah. uh, through that experience um, you know in the case of Mozam the thing that always sticks with him is seeing his children who are the same age as Omar. Um, and this feeling that in the society he's living in, in England, just worrying that his kids could be, you know, the next generation yeah. that will have to go through a very similar saga. Okay. Patrick Reed, Michelle Shepard, and Dennis Edney, thank you very thank much you. for being here with us. Thank you. At 12.44, we will uh, continue this uh, program. We will watch I Am Soon Mu about the North Korean artist in Tushinsky 2. Uh, thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy your day at ITFA. Have a nice day.